Welcome to Daughters of Lorraine, a podcast from your friendly neighborhood Black feminists, exploring the legacies, present, and futures of Black theater. We are your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. On this podcast, produced for HowlRound Theater Commons, a free and open platform for theater makers worldwide, we discuss Black theater history, conduct interviews with local and national Black theater artists, scholars, and practitioners, and discuss plays by Black playwrights that have our minds buzzing. Julius B. Fleming Jr. earned a doctorate in English and a graduate certificate in Africana Studies from the University of Pennsylvania. Specializing in Afro-diasporic literatures and cultures, he has particular interest in performance studies, Black political culture, diaspora, and colonialism, especially where they intersect with race, gender, and sexuality. Professor Fleming is the author of Black Patience, Performance, Civil Rights, and the Unfinished Project of Emancipation from NYU Press. It was shortlisted for the Association for the Study of the Arts of the Present 2023 Book Prize, a finalist for the Hooks National Book Award, and honorable mention for the 2023 John W. Frick Book Award. Professor Fleming is also beginning work on a second book project that explores the new geographies of colonial expansion and their impact on Afro-diasporic literary and cultural production. Fleming's work appears in journals like American Literature, American Literary History, South Atlantic Quarterly, Callaloo, and the James Baldwin Review. Having served as associate editor of both Callaloo and Black Perspectives, the award-winning blog of the African-American Intellectual History Society, Fleming has been awarded fellowships from the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and the University of Virginia's Carter G. Woodson Institute. Today we interview Professor Fleming about his work on Black theater and the civil rights and what it has to offer for Black theater and Black life. All right, welcome back to Daughters of Lorraine. We are in now episode four of our fourth season. Leticia, we have a really special guest today um, joining us. A really exciting guest who we both had the honor and opportunity to learn from while we were in graduate school. And we're so excited to have him on the podcast and to talk about his new book, Fresh Off the Presses. I guess still kind of, it's still fresh in an academic book life. Black Patience, Performance, Civil Rights, and the Unfinished Project of Emancipation. Welcome, Dr. Julius B. Fleming Jr. to the podcast. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, we're really excited. As Leticia said, uh, definitely someone that we've both had opportunity to be mentored by and learn from. And it's just an honor to um, to be able to ha- be in conversation with you today. Um, and we also realized, you know, before this call that we um, that you are not our first academic, but our first time um, really discussing an academic text on the podcast. Um, So we're really excited to dive in. So before we sort of get into talking about the book itself and your research, we'd love to know sort of what is your relationship to theater, performance, um, what brought you to the study of theater in particular, and in general, you know, you're a professor, you're an, an academic. Why is academia the kind of way that you wanted to tell stories or think about black life? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, before I jump into the question, I just want to say thank you to both of you for um, actually having me on. And hopefully I don't uh, set a low bar for those people who will come on and talk about books. Then also just to honestly say that, you know, whatever you learn from me, I probably learn more from both of you uh, in my classes than me. And I'm actually teaching Black Performance Studies now. Um, and I can feel the absence. Just notice your myth. <laughs> um, but in terms of, you know, how it came to theater, it sort of was organic in a way. Um, I wasn't a theater kid in middle school or high school. Um, I didn't really study theater in college. Um, and I was doing research for the dissertation. And I was really interested in African-American literature, uh, particularly African-American literature, um, sort of mid 20th century African-American literature. Um, and these questions around black political culture, um, black political aesthetics, um, and I thought I wanted to do a kind of project about literature during that period broadly. And in some ways, the archive drew me to theater, which I can talk a bit more about later. Um, so I wasn't even trained in performance or theater studies in graduate school. So it was sort of a, a lonely journey trying to, by necessity of what the archive was, teach myself some of the central questions and issues and frameworks in those fields. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the academy and why it's important for telling my stories, I think that's one part of my audience. Uh, so it was a journey learning kind of academies and sort of talking by necessity to people in the academy because I want to keep my job and get tenure. Um, but also as a part of my storytelling practice, I, I'm never too far from those Black people in Mississippi that I grew up with uh, in those Black churches and community centers uh, in my grandmother's neighborhood. So they're as much, if not more, part of my storytelling practice as the kind of academic frameworks and language and grammars. Just a quick question. Did you ever when you were younger experience what we would probably consider like a black play or, or black theater like do you have a moment where because I think a lot about my own sort of entryway into theater and like the lack of seeing theater until I was like much older in a sense I feel like a late bloomer so I'm just curious if you had sort of a, a similar experience or a different experience yeah, so I mean, two two parts, I guess, to this answer. One, I, I went to a Black Baptist church in Mississippi, so I was always in those plays. Um, and when I was kind of like aged out of the plays, I was always you know, working with younger kids to prepare for the Easter plays, the Christmas plays and those sorts of things. But in terms of, you know, kind of theater with a capital T, I, I was I went to a, a kind of honors high school where you had to do performing arts. And so my track was theater. So I was actually in Bridge to Terabithia, which was kind of my first leaning into theater as a kind of, you know, form, um, which which I found really fascinating, just the preparation, but also the performance itself. Right, right. That's so wonderful. I never knew that you had a performing pass. So. <laughs> you can kind of tell. I mean, you can kind of tell. Very short-lived. You know, it's good that I teach English and I'm not trying to make it as an actor because I think I'd be struggling a little bit. Right. I was like, what is going on? So we had to actually, you know, I'm in like inner city Jackson, Mississippi. And so our theater teachers were like, oh, you know, I was like, I want to learn how to act in this. And like, we spent a quarter of the time like doing things like yoga um, and mindfulness exercises. And so I'm like, okay, I guess this this is a thing. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like you have to prepare the mind and the spirit before you, you know, use your body and all these different things. Ah, love theater. Woo woo. I remember one of my friends like said, um, Man, in theater, we breathe together a lot. And I thought, I think about that all the time because I'm like, yeah, I do. We do breathe together a lot. You, you, can, you can imagine an 18 year old black Mississippi boy doing yoga for the first time and breathing and what that experience might have been like. 
<laughs> exactly. And that that is that's amazing. Um so in one also one of the things that I um that I really learned from you, Julius, um, in your in, when I took black performance with you, but just in our conversations, we bonded a lot over the fact that we're both from the South, right? And that we are, you know, looking at things from the perspective of, of growing up in, in the South, you know, you in Jackson, me in Atlanta. And, um, and so your work, your book, Black Patient, looks at the civil rights movement. Um, and before we sort of get into the specificity of the kind of social movement of the civil rights and looking at it from this perspective of theater, I would love for you just to talk a little bit about um, the importance of that Black Southern perspective. And, you know, it's something that is kind of missing when we talk about theater in general, like mainstream theater. Um and, you know, what is the importance of of centering that perspective in telling this history and telling this story? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, thanks for that question. I think uh, in terms of how I identify, of course, identify as Black first. Uh, a close second is uh, as a Southern boy. Uh, that experience growing up in Mississippi uh, w was and still is so formative to who I am and how I move through the world. And also how I relate to Blackness, how I ask critical questions, how I see performances and interpret performances, how I think about limits and possibilities. Um, and so in many ways, the South for me was a kind of perfect laboratory uh, for thinking through what Blackness is sort of writ large in a modern world, you know, it gets this reputation for, and I think it, you know, certainly it, it, that experience is confirmed uh, growing up in the South for, for kind of like the traumas and the difficulties of anti-Blackness, um, the afterlives of slavery and colonialism, all of those things. But I think also what's important is that being in the South, I learned that Black people don't reduce their being to those structures of violence, um, how they create Black beauty, Black joy, um, how mutual aid works uh, in the belly of oppression. Um, and so growing up in the South really kind of shaped my kind of own kind of ontological existential sensibilities, um, but also how I ask my questions and sort of the possibilities and limits that I see in Blackness. Um, and also we can talk about this later. One of the things that motivated me to write this book was that I was not um, in agreement with some historians who were making these claims around the traditional civil rights movement, which of course involved Black Southerners. And what they were implying in essence is that these Black Southerners weren't radical. Um, I took serious issue with that. I think that's so profound. And I think, you know, to your introduction where you open with Fannie Lou Hamer standing up at the intermission of um, the Free Southern Theater's production of Waiting for Guiteau and saying like, no, we can't be like <laughs> these characters on stage and wait. Um, and I think that's such a sort of compelling history that I didn't even realize, like some of our utmost uh, civil rights leaders or folks that we sort of attach to the civil rights movement were actually deeply connected to the theater, either as supporters of the theater, as in conversation with theater or think or using theater to sort of think through some of these larger um, civil rights issues. So I was just curious about what if you could just articulate for our listeners, what is the importance of theater to the civil rights movement? Because it's not something that when you're learning about the civil rights movement, but they're like, oh, yeah, theater was crucial. Yeah, no, that's really good. So one of the things I was really interested in when I um, started this book or what was then a dissertation is 
the importance of genre. And so, as I mentioned or alluded to earlier, I wanted to think about what was the importance of poetry? What was the importance of the novel? What was the importance of essays by people like James Baldwin and Alice Walker to the civil rights movement? In other words, like there was this kind of like gap in African-American literary history. Um, we went from the kind of social protest, naturalism period of Richard Wright, and then we jumped to the black arts movement. So I was interested in kind of mapping the literary front of the civil rights movement. And then the archive drew me to theater. Um, and so I started to wonder, okay, why are all these black people so interested in theater? Um, and if the scholarship wouldn't suggest that. So I had to go to places like Jet and Ebony Magazine and Black World Negro Digest, um, and theater was everywhere. Um, and I think a part of it is that, you know, when kind of this revolutionary spirit is kind of brewing uh, worldwide, it's very different or hard to be in community sitting in front of a fireplace reading a novel or sitting on a front porch reading a novel, right? A 400 page novel. But with a form like theater, you can kind of stage that thing in community. Uh, theater as a form invites communal relations and participation. Uh, the use of something like a talkback invites kind of discussions and critical thinking about what you've just seen, but also about kind of a more kind of macro level social and political environment. Um, but also when I studied these plays in places like Mississippi, where they were staging these radical plays and people were on the lookout, they could say, hey, you know, the Klan is coming or hey, the police are coming. Let's shut this thing down and clean up and get out of here and get back um, so that they never knew we were here. Um, so there was a certain kind of like, political utility to theater um, and expediency to theater um, aesthetically that I think that um, the the people in this era tapped into. And I think by the time we get to the Black Arts Movement, there's a very similar political and aesthetic utility to something like performance poetry, right? That makes uh, right for that political moment. Right. And do you have a, any sense of perhaps why there was this theater was understudied in relationship to the civil rights movement? Like, cause you know, you said you had to go to JET and you had to go to these other places and it wasn't really tapped into the scholarship. And I'm just curious about if theater itself, or if you think that theater itself was considered a form that was, um, even as black people were engaging it, using it, um, was not seen at least in the academic sense as contributing to what we know as big C civil rights movement. No, yeah, I think you're right. And I think a part of it is that so often we take our cues for um, about what's important from the, the structures of power that we act actively try to push against. So I think there's this kind of um, fetish for visual spectacle that took over the civil rights movement um, and that television and photography, um, television being this kind of really new technology that was important to the civil rights movement, photography being this, this kind of mode or form that was important to the civil rights movement. And we, we sort of stopped there because this is kind of what the New York Times was using. This is what ABC is using, CBS. And so I think a part of it is to ask like, what about those kind of like infra-political or kind of um, those marginal right forms that black people were using that might not have been on the news or might not have been newsworthy, but were nonetheless important to black people's struggles and demands for freedom now. Um, and so what I found is that from those sharecroppers in the Mississippi Delta, somebody like, like Fannie Lou Hamer that you mentioned, um, to people like Duke Ellington and Lorraine Hansberry and James Baldwin and even black expatriates, right, who were not even living in the United States, they saw the value of, of theater. And, and, and if we turn and see the value of theater, then I think we can ask anew some of those questions about political radicalism that, that we sometimes don't ask in this period. 
Yeah, I, I love that because, you know, something that we have, we actually, when, when Lisa B. Thompson was on this podcast, I believe that episode is called Black Theater is Black Studies, if I'm not mistaken, um, or, or like this idea of putting respect on black theater. And, um, you know, something it's, you know, the title of your book is Black Patience. And Black Patience is referring to a theory um, that you have, um, that you have mobilized for us that's thinking about um, this relationship between time and black life. And I'm curious if you could kind of illuminate a little bit for our listeners about this theory of black patients. Um, and it's, you know, how you consider this, this concept of time and its relationship to uh, both black theater, but also like black life at large. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think I really like where you started in terms of like put some respect on Black theater. I mean, I'll say that I didn't have that respect for Black theater before I started this work, um, in large part because my training didn't necessitate or kind of cultivate that respect. Um, and so I think, you know, it was interesting. I was on Left to Black with Mark Anthony Neal, and he mentioned Lisa B. Thompson um, and how we were both interested in put some respect on Black theater within Black studies. So this is just a shout out to Lisa. Yo, if you ever want to, like, do some collaborative stuff around Black studies and Black theater, uh, let's get on it. Uh, but yeah, I think we it's an understudied genre. It's a, it's a devalued genre. You know, it's a, a kind of site of subjugated knowledge. Uh, but it has historically been one of the most accessible forms for Black people. Um, and so, and I think also alongside that, um, if we look at the period that I studied, the civil rights movement, I think it's one of the best forms that we have to think about the nature of Black life. So one of the things that I'm interested in and writing about Black patience is sort of the relationship between time and the Black plays and performances and performance organizations themselves. Um, and so almost all of the performances that I study had the, have these kind of short-lived uh, lives, if you will. So I write about the Free Southern Theater, right? And that, that theater was not only bombed, uh, but it also was kind of, it died prematurely. It didn't live past um, a, couple, a, a couple of decades after the civil rights movement. Or if we look at a play like James Baldwin's Blues of Mr. Charlie, it was closed prematurely on Broadway, or Fly Black Bird didn't even make, out, make it out of its Chicago previews. So, you know, we talk about these questions of time and ephemerality and disappearance in performance studies, but a part of what I want to do in the book is to say, hey, if we think about these concepts and key words through the lens of, of Blackness, right, we have to give a different accounting of those terms. Um, I think a more productive accounting that actually takes into account the social political dynamics of kind of racial modernity. So in other words, you know, we can't, you know, it's like, oh, wow, you know, the play disappears. And if you see a play today, you can go see it tomorrow. You see different things, almost this kind of like celebratory, critical posture. Right. Um, but if the disappearance is caused by a bomb or the vice squad, the police vice squad is shutting the play down because there's queer, queer content, then we have to be a little bit less celebratory. You make important points when you sort of think about the utility of Black theater and its relationship to Black studies and Black patience, I think it's just so, so brilliant, especially in in relationship to another concept that you offer us, Afropresentism. Could you talk a little bit about that idea of the Afropresent? I think like, I think that gives us a an an interesting understanding around of how of, of this other ways that you're studying time or thinking or asking black studies and black theater to consider its relationship to time as well. Yeah, for sure. So um, of course I was studying the, the civil rights movement and 
the kind of most popular refrain during that period is freedom now. Um, so I was interested in how Black people were insisting on freedom now at the same time that President I Dwight Eisenhower, President Kennedy, and his brother Robert Kennedy, who was the Attorney General, William Faulkner, everybody's telling Black people, just wait, be patient, right? Even some Black people were invested in Black patients, right? Even the president of the National Baptist Convention was interested in patients and sort of until people like Martin Luther King pushed against them. Um, and so but what I just realized, though, was that patients, and Black patients in particular, has long been a, a kind of a call for Black people to be complacent. And how that call has always been this kind of manipulative use of Black futures to basically keep in place those structures of oppression that are kind of wreaking havoc on Black life now and that have historically wreaked havoc on Black life. And so then I was a little suspicious of this logic of Afrofuturism and Black futures, because if we can kind of trafficking in these kind of ideas of what Berlant calls cruel optimism, which is a kind of optimism that's cruel because those hopes and dreams often don't come to fruition. Um, then we have to like invest in a different temporal framework. Um, that's not to say to, that I want to give up on the black practice of black freedom dreaming, but it is to say that I want to insist more like those people during the civil rights movement on our freedom now. Right. And so when we think about, for example, I often reflect back to President Obama in Charleston, right, when those black people were murdered by that white supremacist um, and these kind of routine calls of black people to wait and be patient and to wait for justice to be served. And, you know, like you're going to like buy Burger King for the man that's like shooting black people in parts of this country. Um, and so wait to what end. Right. And so I think alongside Black Freedom Dream, in other words, we have to invest in the now and to figure out how to live a, a you know, more beautiful and, and sustaining uh, Black lives now, how to create better Black worlds right right now. Yeah, and I we also, on our podcast, like this past episode, right, like we talked about Douglas Turner Ward and his um, essay, American Theater for Whites Only, where he says like, no, we need we need change or we need funding for black theater now. And we, we kind of were like, oh, my God, we're so sorry to talk to Julius because then that's going to be a connection. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Leticia. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. You don't don't no need to apologize. You know how we do. Um, I, I, I just think this is so fascinating because I'm thinking also, as you know, thinking through this sort of idea of like if. Even as as you said, we are in the belly of oppression. That's not the way that sort of black being exists always, right? Like we're not downtrodden, you know, dragging our feet, right? There, There is something else that is alongside it all along. And I think when we sort of think about theater and enacting this potential future or this like temporal experience of what we might say is joy or in my case abundance right then then how how does that help us how does theater allow us to access that in real time in ways that we may not have the opportunity um in other ways so i i love what you're sort of saying around um the use of time and, and the and the functionality of theater yeah yeah no and i think it's such as a form theater is so good for that because it's like oh when the curtain closes there's a certain kind of finality to that, right? Even as there might be another show tomorrow. Um, and so it's like invest in this, whatever hour and a half or two hours, right? This moment of the now, we don't know what's gonna, if the curtain's gonna open again tomorrow, right? Um, so I think there's something about theater that invites a particular relation to the now that's particularly productive for black people. Yeah, and and the, and the, 
you know, like what you were saying around time specifically for black theater is so crucial because, you know, in the last we can just look at the last few years on Broadway. Right. Like all of the black plays that we've had, but like they've closed prematurely or they, you know, haven't had their due. Um, right. Like it, with Ain't No Mo, we had to have this big campaign to save it. To, for it to, you know, achieve its full run. Um, a Strange Loop closed before it was supposed to, before it was supposed to close. And this is a Pulitzer Prize winning, Tony Award winning musical, and it still was unable to finish its run on Broadway. I mean, I know it's touring now, um, so hopefully they're able to kind of um, continue to recoup, you know, whatever investments may or may not have been lost in that process. But I just think about all of the, I mean, I think what you're saying is, is relevant even to contemporary black theater and performance. Some of the play, I was so excited when I was reading your book because, you know, there is this range of theater that is represented in your book, right? So you have like the quote unquote avant-garde European highbrow with Waiting for Godot, right? And then you have something that's more accessible and fun and entertaining like Pearly Victorious. And so I was just curious um, with your discussion of genre and thinking about genre, like what um, what that teaches us also about um, Black Southern life and like expectations around what people might be interested in because i think that's a really interesting conversation because you know ex for example you know people will talk about what black people aren't aren't interested in they don't black people don't go to theater all these different things right so you know how does that how do those genres also figure into this conversation too yeah no i i, I appreciate that um and i think you're right you put your finger on it uh, there's this kind of like yearning to reduce black people to a single thing um and sometimes by black people um so i'm actually just always frankly shocked when i see any kind of totalizing claim about what blackness is or who black people are um because black people and blackness escape definition so it made total sense to me when i was writing this book that hey you know sometimes you might get a, a sharecropper with a sixth grade education who's in a cotton field in the mississippi delta rocking out to waiting for godot um, sometimes enjoying waiting for Godot, but other times not liking it and throwing spitballs at the stage, right? Um, and so wh while some people might want to kind of celebrate this, you know, this pronouncement from Fannie Lou Hamer is kind of radical tenor and, you know, it's Black feminist potential, all these kind of, of course I want to embrace that, but I also want to embrace those Black kids who threw spitballs at the stage. I also want to think about the man next door at the shack next door who during one of the Free Southern Theaters productions turned on his lawnmower, right? Um, so that he could drown out the sound of the performance to let the white people know that he was not on board with this radical stuff going on at the shack next door, right? Um, or, you know, even SNCC, as much as we venerate this civil rights organization, SNCC said things like, we don't see why they're running around here with their sets and station wagon, right? Um, th th this is not a priority for the civil rights movement. So I think what we get in theater um, is the full range, or not the full range, but some semblance of the range of Black um, how fluid and plastic blackness is, right? Um, how it's irreducible to any one thing. Um, and I think to your question, particularly about form, it makes sense to me that they would go from somebody waiting for Godot to something like, you know, James Baldwin's really long blues for Mr. Charlie, right? Um, and sort of how he was really fascinated with a lot of the white playwrights and what they were doing in the middle of the 20th century. Um, or someone like Duke Ellington, right, who turns to, to musical theater 
who was seen as Uncle Tom and Stephen Fetcher, but was so invested in using theater in the civil rights movement that he actually took time to build the sets himself, himself right? Um, and so, or someone like Amiri Baraka, who's writing about queerness. And of course, I don't expect him to produce a three-act play about something that actually produces deep discomfort for him. So it makes sense that he would turn to the one act to this kind of work. So in other words, you know, if we if hover over the kind of broad archive of Black theater, again, to your earlier question about Black studies in Black theater, we actually get a working theory, a working framework, a working definition of what my, Blackness might be. No, yeah, I was, I, again, just continue to to agree with you in, in so many facets. And I think that it's so interesting that sometimes, at least my experience in Black Studies, is that sometimes we might overlook how some of the figures in which we sort of like uphold as like the standard or the, or the center or like important figures were integrated with theater throughout their entire life, either as playwrights, as supporters. Like I think like, you know, Du Bois was a sociologist, but he was also you know, uh, a, a part of the crisis and, and recruiting playwrights to submit their, black playwrights to submit their plays so it could be in the crisis and see the functionality. He had a um, theater company, right? Um, in your class, I learned that Sylvia Winter wrote plays. Like, so I think that this like black studies and black theater being side by side has always been present and that relationship has been important. And I wish that we, you know, maybe because I'm trained <laughs> In, in theater and performance, I'm just like, Black Studies, come on, put some, come on, us theater people out here, we're relatives, we're cousins, and not even play cousins, we cousins cousins. That's right. 100%. And I, and I think that, you know, even before the genre was, like, formalized for us in a certain way, um, it was already happening, right, in practice, like, even taking the plantation as a ground of, of Black performance, if not Black theater, um, or I think back to someone like Ira Aldrich, right? The question is like, why aren't we studying this man, right? An early black playwright who was already taking up these big questions of colonialism and race and questions of race and medicine and race and labor. So, you know, I think sometimes, and I'll be real with you, there's such a desire for black, a particular genre of black exploitation, right? So you want to write about the slave on the plantation, but we don't actually want to look at Ira Aldridge as the black doctor, whereas he, he's writing about colonialism, but through the exploitation of this man's medical knowledge. William Wells Brown writes a play similarly about the exploitation of black people's medical knowledge. So we don't want that kind of pretty, quote unquote, pretty version of exploitation. We want the slave grinding on the plantation. And we have to ask questions, you know, about why we desire that particular form of exploitation. Yeah. And, and explored, like you said, explored in that way and um, in these in the form, right, that most people see as a colonial. Um, I think about one of my colleagues and friends um, who writes about theater in Hawaii and having to kind of think about theater as this colonial form but also one that Hawaiian folks have utilized and and um, and been a part of, right? Um, and how do you reconcile these these crisis this crisis of genre? Um, but I think and I and I wrestle with my own work, right? I write about musicals, like that is probably one of the most clear forms of exploitation within theater practice of of Black people. Um, and yet, right? I think that your work explores that and yet aspect and quality of that um 
And so, yeah, in, in terms of just like, so you have black patients, you have us rethinking civil rights movement from the vantage point of theater. Um, I don't know, what's next in terms of your academic research? Like, what, where where do you go um, from here? Or, or what is your... Um, continued research agenda have to offer yeah oof the million dollar question <laughs> you're like you're like i just wrote a book sit with it a while <laughs> i know i know but you know <laughs> things have to be done and yeah i and it was like the left side of my brain is like you know is, is retirement here yet and i look at my book and i'm like okay maybe you have to write one or two more things it's like i'm tired or what just interests you? Like where, where, what, what things are like pulling your your mind and your, and your thinking? Yeah, so I'll tell you as a, like a big thing that's occupying me right now, seriously. And I'll talk about a, a couple of projects that I'm working on. It's just like, how do we take black people seriously? Um, and I know that sounds like so trite and simple, but one of the things I learned from writing that first book is that you know, black people have often thought very critically about who they are and how they exist in the world. And they've thought critically about the nature of the world itself. Um, and, you know, and I, I really, as an intellectual experience, I really appreciate frameworks like, you know, Afrofabulation and critical fabulation. My worry is that, though, that 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 will there'll be this impulsive um, conclusion that Black people haven't left traces of their thinking, of their being, and that we prematurely engage in a process of fabulation. Well, I think a part of what has to happen is that we have to have different points of access in Black people's past. Um, and, and so a part of what Black studies might have to do is to turn to something like theater or an embodied performance um, as a particular repertoire, as a particular archive that we take seriously to think about the question of Black being, Black history, Black ontology. So that's that's been occupying my mind. And so a part of one of the projects, a short project that I'm going to do is actually on the Black South to go back to the beginning of, of the conversation. And so I'm, I just finished this chapter about um, Claude McKay. And Claude McKay, of course, is always celebrated as the kind of quintessential figure of transnationalism, right? He gives us this paradigm of transnational mobility. Um, and people like Gilroy have talked about the importance of the ship and the importance of the ocean. But if we look at Claude McKay's work, in almost every piece of his work, Black Southerners are left out of that Afro-diasporic transnational vision. So in Banjo, the Banjo is called an honorary member of the collective, right? He's not really one of them. Or in Home to Harlem, the Black Southerner has to go back to the U.S. nation state. So, you know, all of this kind of like celebratory, um, you know, posturing around the transnational, we, we have to rethink it. And we have to think about who it leaves out. And, and, and this conversation about we need to get away from the nation, um, that can be a privileged position because for some people, the nation has been the site that we've had to turn to, um, to build a life and to make a world. And so in that project, um, I'm interested in that question and in turning to the South. Um, for example, we think about something like the Panama Canal, but what about all of those local rivers and lakes and other bodies of water that aren't the Atlantic or the Pacific that are actually more important to Black Southerners' lives. Um, so that's one project. And I have a project that's about um, outer space as the kind of next leg of colonial expansion. Wow, I'm really excited about these projects. And I'm actually working on a article for Theater Journal right now um, that's based off of, um, oh, what essay is it? I think it might be your Pearl Clegg essay um, about geography. Um, and I, I'm trying to sort of think through what what I'm 
talking about black theatrical geographies and uh, contemporary African-American theater being integral and sort of shifting the space of the theater. So I'm also excited about these, these other projects that I'm like, when you said the thing about fabulation, I was like, wow, I actually never considered how we might be also engaging in violence prematurely by insinuating that black people haven't left traces, right? In other forms, in other ways, in things that we may not even consider holding these traces. Yeah, because I think I think that that kind of um, logic of black lack, black absence, black erasure can be so pervasive that it it it, it then kind of informs our critical moves, um, and so it's like ideology seeps then into the frameworks and the methods that we use. And um, yeah, so I just think we have to ask some questions about that, especially because we know people bring so much baggage to blackness um, that can then interfere with and kind of sometimes obscure what the object really is that you're studying. Well, Julius, this has been a fascinating conversation. And before we close, we like to do a thing on our podcast where we leave our listeners some recommendations, articles, books, plays, films, whatever it is, whatever you want to sort of leave for an offering for our listeners. And we would like to invite you to share anything that you would like to offer to them. So, I mean, you know what I would say? I would say, um, I don't know which pieces you would direct them toward. One of the things that I've, long been interested in is how there's not as much scholarship on black contemporary black women's performance coaches. Um, a lot of late 19th, a lot of early 20th century stuff. So I'm going to tell your audiences, go and look up Leticia and Jordan's work. Um, I think you two are doing some of the most brilliant work on black women's um, performance coaches. Um, and I think it's an area that needs to be kind of the next explosion in theater and performance studies. So yeah, your audiences should go and read some of your work. They'll 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 thank me later. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we gotta get to we gotta get to publishing, Leticia. Um thank you so much, uh Julius. Um your work has been instrumental both in our our work as as um colleagues as uh mentees and you know it's such a pleasure to talk to you um and also helping us and i said this because actually i had the pleasure of spending some time with julius just last week when he was here in rochester giving a wonderful talk but um i said it then is that not only is your work helping us to rethink this uh political movement from this vantage point of expressive culture specifically theater but also um, you're helping us in black theater history to rethink how we characterize, teach, cite, and write about the civil rights movement in relationship to black theater. Um, it was It's a dearth, I would say, um, that your book really fills. And it helps me to reconsider when I'm teaching something like black theater history, like how do I think about how black artists, how black theater artists in particular are, are engaging civil rights movement? Um, so everyone go get Black Patience uh, and NYU Press um, and, and read this book. It's a, it's a much needed, um, much needed engagement of civil rights movement and Black theater. I really appreciate you all. Seriously. Thank you. This has been another episode of Daughters of Lorraine. We're your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. On our next episode, we'll discuss 
Susan Lori Parks' Top Dog Underdog, and its production at Canadian Stage. We have so much in store for you this season that you definitely will not want to miss. In the meantime, if you're looking to connect with us, please follow us on Twitter at D-O-Lorraine-Pod, P-O-D. You can also email us at daughtersoflorraine at gmail.com for further contact. Our theme music is composed by Inza Bamba. The Daughters of Lorraine podcast is supported by HowlRound Theatre Commons, a free and open platform for theatre makers worldwide. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and HowlRound.com. If you are looking for the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, you'll want to search and subscribe to HowlRound Podcasts. If you loved this podcast, post a rating and write a review on those platforms. This helps other people find us. You can also find a transcript for this episode, along with a lot of other progressive and disruptive content on HowlRound.com. Have an idea for an exciting podcast, essay, or TV event the theater community needs to hear? Visit HowlRound.com and submit your ideas to the comments.